go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 13. So because of the uh, job that I do everything from, I always tell people I do everything from um, IT stuff to planning office moves to doing what I call break fix to I've even cleaned toilets at Chicago Title just because it had to be done, you know. So I tell people I wear a lot of hats to do a lot of things. But one of the things that I'm often called on to do is to move a user or we'll call a user an employee within an office space because of conflict, Meaning, I get a call from somebody that says, you've, you've, we're going to make some changes in your office. And I always know, oh, it's, somebody's not getting along. And sure enough, I'll have to go in. They need somebody move from this cubicle to over in this cubicle because they can't seem to get along sitting eight feet away from each other with walls up, right? And so, conflict. And so I get called on to do that. Well, I had a rather interesting thing happen to me. Um, did not happen to me, but I think I was involved with a number of um, months ago. Whenever um, I have to do something that requires I be logged in as the user, we're not supposed to share passwords. It's like a no-no. And all the employees are told, never give your password to anyone. But I always say there's an asterisk after that. Because there are some things that I cannot do unless I know the user's username. And so I always tell them, look, either give it to me or I change it and I'll get a new one and I'll use that. And so they'll give me that. So I had two users to take care of in an office and so I called the one and I said, I'm going to need your password because I had to set up some stuff that required you log into something called Office 365 and that. So I'm always a little afraid to ask because... I don't know what people use for their passwords, right? And, you know, if they have a four-letter word or other things, it could be a little embarrassing. You know, well, this particular user, I asked him, I said, what's your password? And he said, oh, well, it's I-H-A-T-E-S-H-A-R-L-E-E-N pound one. Well, I hate Charlene. Well, Charlene was his coworker. I'm thinking, yeah, could have just said... Let me change it for first, and then I'll give it to you, you know? But he didn't seem to have any... I hate Charlene, pound sign, exclamation point, you know? So I reach out to Charlene, who's his co-worker. She's not there, so she called me back the next day, and I said, I need to do this, blah, blah, blah. Can I ask you what your password is? And she says, yeah, it's I hate Tyler, with a couple of special... Well, Tyler was her co-worker. So obviously there's something, there's only two people in the office. It's a joint venture we have. It's the only two people in the office. And if your passwords are, I hate my coworker, you know that they're either just really teasing each other and they share that information and they're playful or they really just hate each other. There's something going on there. They've got, both of them have some rather, rather strong personalities, so I would suspect maybe there's some conflict in that office, though I can't say that for certain. So obviously, because we're all sinful human beings, conflict is inevitable. This is true of brothers and sisters within family. I always find it tragic when brothers and sisters don't get along, and I have friends who don't get along with their siblings. Um, that's somewhat foreign to me because I've got three brothers and sisters, or well, one brother and two sisters, and um, we have always been very close. And so it breaks my heart when I have friends who have conflict with their brothers and sisters and, and don't get along. You get it between husbands and wives. I was reading an article yesterday about the founder, I don't remember her name, the founder of Proverbs 31 Ministries. Um, uh, what's that? 
Yes, yeah. Um, suffered a divorce recently. Her husband was having multiple affairs and was somewhat abusive and she ends up divorcing him and she's just remarried. And that's always tragic when you see husbands and wives um, going through the difficult times like that. There's conflict in marriage. Um, parents and children. I know some children and parents who hate one another. Um, friends, neighbors, Co-workers were a part of a um, Facebook group for our association in our neighborhood and every once in a while somebody will post something because they're frustrated with the neighbors who are taking their dogs around and not cleaning up the poop in their yard or whatever and so they'll blast it out on Facebook, you know. Um, as we went through COVID with all of that kind of stuff, there was probably more vitriol than I think I've ever seen among Christians because of disagreements on politics or wearing masks or anything else. Conflict is, in many respects, inevitable. And it happens even to believers. So the real question isn't how do we prevent conflict because it's going to happen. We're sinful human beings. The question really is more how do we deal with it? How do we resolve it when it happens? And the Bible has an awful lot to say about that. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and it has to do with Abraham and Lot and some conflict that developed between the two of them and how that was ultimately resolved. So we're going to look at that today. I'm going to go ahead and start with chapter 13, the first five verses. We're going to see how Adam or Abram's prosperity brought conflict. Abraham's prosperity actually brought about some conflict. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, that's the south um, of the land of Canaan, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. After being kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh, Abram returned back up to the land of Canaan. It says he went to the south there, Negev. That's ultimately part of what we now know as Israel, the southern part. And then he went back to Bethel where he had originally built an altar. He began to worship God there. Now, verses 2 and verse 5 remind us of the wealth that Abram and Lot had accumulated. Part of the wealth Abraham had acquired when he was in Haran before he left, if we go back to 12.5, we see it says, Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated, this is while they were in Haran, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So even by the time Abram got to the land of Canaan, he was already beginning to accumulate some wealth. However, if you remember from our passage last week, the Pharaoh of Egypt was also very good to Abram, and he developed even further wealth while he was there. If you look at chapter 12, verse 16, it says, Therefore he, the Pharaoh, treated Abram well for Sarai's sake, and he gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So as a result, when Abram returned to Bethel, Verse 13 of chapter 12 says that he was very wealthy. He was rich. He had a lot of livestock. had silver, gold. Now verse 5 in our text this morning tells us that even Lot himself had flocks and herds and tents. 
Now, what we learn about this ultimately is that these blessings cause some conflict between Abraham and Lot. And the reason is their possessions were so great that they couldn't remain together when they returned back up to Canaan. Now, think about that for a moment. Um, There's not enough land for both of them to be in the same region. Apparently because there was too much for their livestock. So unfortunately, all of this wealth ends up leading to conflict between Abraham's family and Lot's. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's flock, livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So what you basically have is they return back and they're sharing this land, not just between each other, but also some of the Canaanites. And that's probably why that's mentioned there. The Canaanites were in the land as well. They weren't displaced, much like when they went into the land 500 years later and conquered the land and they were told to kick out all of the Canaanites. No, this is Abraham just went down there and dwelled among them. And so we have this problem that arises because of the wealth and the blessings that they had received. There's just plain too much of it for Lot and Abraham to stay together. And so what you have is now this infighting, not so much between Lot and Abram, but between their employees. And they're bickering and they're fighting, probably because they don't have enough for their livestock. That's what we have laid out here. So what I would say is essentially what we have here is the blessings of wealth actually led to the conflict. They wouldn't have had this problem if they had a couple of sheep and goats. We don't know how big the flocks were, but the description we find here is it was fairly large. If you can't graze your sheep and your cattle in a particular area as far as the eye can see, you've got a problem. So, as I look at this, I think to myself, what's the takeaway with just something as simple as this? I'm going to say it this way. Prosperity and wealth can be a blessing, but it can also lead to conflict. You ever see that? Whether it's in your own life or other places? Sometimes the blessings of wealth can lead to conflict. They can certainly lead to conflict among individuals. James deals with this in his letter. There's conflict between the rich and the poor. As we look at the book of James, in fact, you'll get a kick out of this. I don't know that I've ever preached on the book of James at Grace or even here. Dustin wants me to because it's one of my favorite books. It's the first book I ever translated from scratch in seminary. Books, that was back before we had computers doing all our stuff for us. Books spread out everywhere. and I absolutely love the book of James, partly because of the nostalgia, but partly because of how practical it is. But a major theme in the book is the conflict between the rich and the poor within the church. And part of it's because as the rich would come in, the poor would give them special favors. Come here, sit in the best seats, and they would kick the poor people off, you know. You poor people, you can sit here at my feet. You know, sit on the floor. And so the poor were sort of catering up to the rich, fancying the rich, probably trying to gain their favor. But we're also told in the book that the rich were oppressing the poor. James chapter 6, or chapter 2, verse 6 says, But you have dishonored the poor man. He's talking about the poor, but then he says this, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So here we have the rich suing the poor. They don't have enough rich. And these you would assume are believers because that's who James is writing to. 
Look at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 with me. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become like moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted. Your, their rust will be like a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fastened your, or fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So we have the rich mistreating the poor in the church body. Now, I'm going to call them the non-rich. We don't know that they're necessarily all poor, but they certainly weren't wealthy, certainly weren't rich. They weren't innocent either. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. They were apparently lusting after and coveting what others had in the church that they did not. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you don't have. So you commit murder. I take that literally here. Apparently some were mad enough and angry enough and envious enough that they had killed people. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jump down to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, and it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This was a church that was in conflict. And their particular conflict had a lot to do with the differences between those who had and those who didn't. And even those who had a tremendous amount were oppressing those who didn't, and those who didn't have enough were envious and covetous of those who had. So there was some major conflict in this church. The reason I mention Dustin may get a kick out of this is I actually dreamt the other night that I was preaching on the book of James. <laughs> Maybe that's a sign. I don't know. So we have this conflict in the church that came about in part because of the blessings of some within the church. Sometimes God's blessings, sometimes the world, the wealth we receive in the world that we live in can lead to conflict. Now, prosperity and wealth can also lead to conflict between us and God. So it's not just that wealth and prosperity can lead to conflict between individuals and even individual believers, but it actually can lead to conflict between us and God. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus said in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He went on. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is often because our hearts are where our treasure is. We're 
storing up treasures for ourselves on earth instead of treasuring or storing up treasures in heaven. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a, not the, but a, root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I'm not trying to say here that wealth is a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that being rich is a bad thing. God obviously blesses some. The problem is the conflict that often results if we are not careful. And whether you like it or not, Wealth is a huge part of what causes conflict. I don't know how much truth there is to this. I know it used to be true, but the number one, according to many marriage counselors, the number one issues, the number one conflict within the marriage relationship is often what? Money. Oftentimes when it comes to divorce, that's the number one issue that is debated and fought over, even more so than who gets the kids. Is who gets... What's in the 401k? Who gets what's in the house? The possessions. And so again, it's not that wealth or possessions or riches or God's blessings are a bad thing. They're not. It's the conflict that comes as a result oftentimes that if we're not careful, can lead to what we see. And so what we find here is you get this amazing blessing of Abraham and Lot. God blessed both of them tremendously with wealth. He had promised Abraham when he called him out of Ur, that he would indeed bless him. That's a good thing. The problem was, they get back to the land of Canaan, and it leads to some conflict that they now have to resolve. And so that's the real issue. How do we resolve conflict, no matter what the cause, whether it's wealth or anything else? So we get to the second part of this, which I'm going to refer to as Abraham's sacrificial actions fostered peace it was Abraham's actions that ultimately fostered peace between himself and Lot Abram is actually the one who initiates the solution and it's one that involved sacrifice on his behalf there's a lesson in this for us and we'll see that in a moment look at verses 8 and 9 so Abram said to Lot please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. So the first thing we see here is that Abraham desires peace. That's what's in his heart. He doesn't want the conflict. Second thing we see there is that he's the one who initiates peace. It wasn't Lot that said, hey, let's do something about this. It was Abram that initiated the peace. The third thing that we see here is that Abram makes a gracious and sacrificial offer. It cost Abram something, at least from a human perspective here. God had promised Abram all that land. It was his. Abram could have said, guess what, Lot? You see the big lake over there? Go the other side of it, because all this is mine. So the way we're going to resolve this is, you go there, give me what's mine. I have a right to all this stuff, because God gave it to me. That's my right. So the way we fix this, move along, 
Go do your own thing. God gave you a lot of stuff. Take it with you. And we're okay here. But look at what he did. He looks at this and he says, Lot, let's not have any more conflict. You do what you need to do. Look around. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. He allowed Lot to take whatever Lot wanted of the land. Look again at verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. Meaning, go find what you need to find here. If to the left, I'll go to the right. If to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, we might expect Lot at this point to do the good and gracious thing and say, No, 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 Abram, God gave you this land. You take the best of the land and I'll take whatever's left. It's yours. God gave it to you. And oh, by the way, you've been good to me. My dad died. You took me in. When God called you, you took me with you. When we had to go down to the Negev, you took me with you. You've been like a father to me. So, you take what you want and I'll go with what's left over. But instead, in stark contrast to Abram's selfish and sacrificial offer, Lot looks around and goes, huh, you know, that stuff over there is really, really lush. He says, it's like the Garden of the Lord. Now you remember the Garden of Eden was watered by four rivers that came into it. The Garden of Eden, we all all love to see that. He also looks around and he sees it just like the land of Egypt, which was watered by the Nile. And so as Lot is looking out over that, it's too tempting, tempting for him to resist. So he decides to take the best of the land and settle in the cities of the Jordan, in the valley there of Sodom. So Lot looks around, says, hmm, I'll take the best. This stuff is watered, it's fertile, it's good for my cry, good for my livestock and everything else. It's going to be great for crops. So, alright, Abram, I'll take the best for me. You can have what's left over. Now, I don't think it's shocking to see that at the end of verse 13, there's a little statement made. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Let's go back and read verses 10 through 13 to see how this plays out. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's our first little reference there. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Do you think there's some foreshadowing there? Twice Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned. Once, that they were destroyed by the Lord. Two, that they were exceedingly wicked. There's some foreshadowing going on there. Lot's decision to take the best of the land is ultimately going to lead to some trouble. He's going to have to be rescued by Abram in a little while. So again, there's some foreshadowing there. It's not stated specifically in this passage, but Abram's selflessness and his sacrificial actions required an element of faith to do what he did. Abraham could have taken the best of the land. It was his. He could have said, God gave me this lot. It's mine. I'm not being selfish. I'm just fulfilling God's promise. You need to go somewhere else. 
Instead, by allowing Lot to take the best of the land and settling for what was left, it was an act of faith. God would now have to act to continue to bless him, to give him what he had promised. So what's our takeaway from this? God's people should resolve conflict through selfishness, selflessness, sacrifice, and faith, just like Abram. Let me repeat that. God's people should resolve conflict through selflessness, sacrifice, and faith. The Bible is filled with statements and commands calling on us to be peacemakers. Just listen to these, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. In Romans 12.18, the Bible says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that would include believers and unbelievers. As far as it's dependent upon you, be at peace with all men. Not, well, you know, if they're willing to cooperate, if they're willing to be peaceful, you know, get together. No, he's saying, as, as, as much as depends on you, try to be at peace. In Romans 14, verse 19, it says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Lastly, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, says, Pursue peace with all men. God wants us, God expects us to pursue peace as much as it depends on us. Now, it's not always possible, but as much as it depends on us, we should be the initiators of peace. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it, sometimes? Sometimes to be peacemakers, we have to be like Abram. We have to make some sacrifices. We have to consider the needs of others or their desires above our own. It may even require that we give up something, including maybe some selfishness, maybe even some pride. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, which we know all those to be true, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own interests, but for those, or but also for the interests of others. Is that another hard pill to swallow? Well, they don't deserve it. It's not what it says. It doesn't say here, therefore, if they deserve it, make my joy complete. We're called to be peacemakers as best we can, as much as depends on us. And that generally requires some form of sacrifice. It costs us something oftentimes. Now, it doesn't mean that God expects us to be a doormat or for people to walk all over us. But it does require that we be motivated to try to find peace, to try to reduce conflict as much as it depends on us. Like Abraham, it also is going to involve faith on our part. I think it always does. I think about, um, and I've shared this before, um, the relationship that I have with one of my particular managers, operation managers, who um, can be brutal. He's mean-spirited. He's nasty. He's come right out and he used to be a former pastor, um, pastor of Methodist churches for 10 years, um, brags about how he destroyed three of them. He is outwardly 
boasted about how ruling by fear is much more effective than any other form of managing. And so if his people fear him, he gets more out of them. Now he's extremely successful. He's, he's turned the operation around. He's made it a huge success. Um, but I am oftentimes um, abused by him. Um, I had a little go-around the other, the other day where um, he needed a uh, part of his laptop fixed. And so I, I kind of had an idea how he's probably going to respond. But I'm like, great, I'm on it. So I went ahead. He was whining and complaining because he couldn't put a network jack in the side of it, you know. Um, and our wireless was down still because of the breach we had. And so he was complaining about that. And so I'm like, great, I'll get a tech out there. So I went ahead and I spent a half hour on the phone talking to some guy in India that barely understood what a laptop was in the first place. But finally got it worked out. Got a tech scheduled. Got a part ordered. The tech calls me, says, I'm trying to schedule, but the guy's not calling me back. I'm like, I'm on it. So I reached out to the manager and, you know, the tech's kind of waiting. Can you at least please respond and get something worked out? You know, so he finally did and they scheduled a day and then he didn't show up. And the tech's calling me saying, he's not returning the call. I can't get a hold of him. I've got the part here. I need to get this cleared out, get it fixed for him. So I texted the manager and I said, hey, the tech's trying to get a hold of you. Can you at least reach out to him? He'd like to work out some time right now. And his response was, you do it. I'm in Ohio. You're in Kansas. You know, so I texted him back and said, I just need you to reach back out to him. He can meet you anywhere, anytime, your schedule. It's a 15-minute job. And his response back was, I don't have the time for it. I'm like, so you've wasted my time, you've wasted the text time, you've wasted the guy from India his time. You know, so I'm like, so you want me to cancel the ticket? Yes. That is a typical exchange. I am constantly fighting the battle of why should I do anything for you? Because this is normal behavior. So I cut and pasted it to my boss just to cover my butt. But I think in my head, his interests, not mine. His operation, not mine. So what do I do? The next time he whines and complains, and I think I shared this with Matt and Dustin, he'll call in a week or two whining and complaining because he still has no internet because he can't plug something into his laptop. And what will I be expected to do? Get back on the phone, talk to some guy in India that doesn't understand what a laptop is, get a new part, a new tech, and then I will fight the battle again trying to get it scheduled with somebody who says, I don't have time. How should I respond? Put my pride aside, make some sacrifices, put in the time. Why? Because he obviously needs that to do his job so that his operation is successful, right? Sometimes it costs us something. But we should do whatever we can do. I certainly couldn't just say, nope, gee, sorry. Partly because I know that then he makes a phone call to somebody six levels higher than me who then calls the guy below him and then him and then him and then then it finally comes back to me, why aren't you doing A, B, or C? And then I can explain everything and they'll say, yeah, but that's your job. But to be real honest, that's not my greater motivation because I know my boss now understands. And he would laugh along with me. The real motivation for doing it is I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. God calls me to try to resolve conflict, even if it means I'm the one who has to initiate it. I'm the one that has to take the abuse. I'm the one that has to A, B, or C. Now again, it doesn't mean I have to be a doormat. And I don't. 
I won't let him walk all over me. I'll let my boss know. Sometimes I've let his boss know. But I'm trying to initiate peace. Not easy though. Sometimes it costs us something. But there's an element of faith there because you sit back and you kind of go, okay, Lord, you know what's going on. You deal with this. And that gets to our third point here. Abraham's benevolence and his faith was reciprocated by the Lord. Benevolence refers to the disposition of doing good or acts of kindness. It's a good word to describe Abram's actions towards Lot. He was being benevolent. He was being kind to Lot. He was looking out for Lot's best interests. It's also a good word to describe the Lord's response to Abram here. Just as he had done before, the Lord confirmed his promise that he made to Abram back in Ur. And again, once that he had entered the land of Canaan. Look at verses 13 or 14 through 18 here in our passage. The Lord actually now speaks to Abram after this event. He says to Abram in verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give, and I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that anyone can number the dust of the earth and your descendants can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent, and he came and he dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord, presumably, as we've talked about before, to now worship the Lord in response. The Lord's original promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he sent him to the land of Canaan and he promised to make him a great nation. But Abram settled in Shechem, in the land of Canaan, the Lord revealed that he would give the land to his descendants. Here we see even more detail. He says the land would extend way beyond where Abram had settled. As far as he could see, the east, the west, the north, the south. The Lord would give the land to Abraham's descendants, it says here, forever. It wouldn't just stop with Abram. It would be a blessing on his descendants. It says his descendants would be as the dust of the earth, un. Is it innumerable or unnumberable? Unnumberable, I believe. Is it innumerable? It's innumerable, but is it unnumberable? I don't know. Couldn't be counted. Right? So after Lot took the best of the land, and after it appeared that, from an earthly perspective, maybe Abram got the short end of the stick. He got the leftovers. He got the crumbs that had fallen from the table. But it's not the case. Because God confirmed with Abram that all of the land would still ultimately be his and that of his descendants. Abraham's sacrifice, his benevolence, and his faith were met by the same from his heavenly father. Our takeaway from this, our sacrifices that we make to try to resolve conflict the benevolence that we show, the grace we show in that, the faith that we demonstrate, do not go unnoticed or unrewarded by God. The Bible is filled with promises that we will be rewarded for doing good, especially when it involves doing good to those who mistreat us. Listen to some of these Bible verses. You don't have to look them up. You can write them down. But Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Why? And your reward will be great. 
He's not talking about earthly rewards there. He's talking about his heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his saints in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. In other words, God is not going to forget what you've done. He's not going to forget what it cost you. He's not going to, have to, he's not going to forget about the sacrifice you make. He's not unjust. He remembers those things. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The example I shared before, I'm no longer doing for the manager. I'm doing it for the Lord. He sees it because I've learned over the last seven, eight, nine years, however long it's been, he doesn't remember what I do for him. Maybe to some degree. Don't know that it matters because he continues to treat me exactly the same way. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ who you serve. Sometimes in our conflicts, I fear that we settle for earthly resolution or earthly rewards of some kind and we forfeit ultimately the rewards that God promises us. Sometimes we are so focused on the here and now and getting our retribution for being mistreated or feeling like somehow I'm not no, I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna do that here. Not this time. And we forget that ultimately it's not about the other individual. It's about serving Christ. It's about the rewards that ultimately God will give us. You think that's a fair trade? Would you rather receive your reward here and now than later? I don't think this world has enough to offer us that makes that trade worthwhile, do you? And yet, it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Especially when you're in the heat of it. When somebody's mistreating you, when there's conflict that you didn't start, you didn't pick, and maybe you have really nothing to do with it, but it's still coming your direction. Now again, nothing in the Bible says we have to be a doormat. Nothing says we have to lay down and just take the abuse. But wherever it depends upon us, in resolving the conflict, we should try. Be willing to sacrifice if we have to. To turn the other cheek if we have to. I don't know if I've ever shared this example before, but when I was in college, I lived with Steve Schmeckel and another individ- two other individuals. And one of them just quit school and left. And left us to pay his portion of the rent. And at that time, you know, we were all poor college students, eating ramen noodles, you know. And um, so it was really hard because it was fairly early in the semester, and so we're paying his monthly rent for him, and he kept saying, oh, I'll pay it, you know. He never did, and never did. And so it, it added up to, I think, about $1,000 or something or whatever. And that was a lot of money for the others of us to have to try to figure out how to pay. And so he was a brother in Christ, not a very mature one, but it wasn't right for him to do what he did. Especially when he went on and started doing other things and spending his money and everything else and not offering to reimburse us for the rent that we had to pay on his behalf. And so um, Steve and I were the only two, well, Steve and I and this other individual were the only saved ones, but the other guy we lived with, the fourth one, was unsaved. And so it was me, Steve, and this unsaved guy that were bearing the burden of the Christian's abandonment of paying what he owed. And so... Steve and I are thinking, well, this burden really shouldn't fall on the unsaved individual. We're trying to witness to him, and it's not fair that he's now having to pay for something at another believer. So Steve and I are trying to bear that burden. And we had people telling us, well, you should sue. You should take him to small claims court. 
And we really struggled with that because we're like, but the Bible says we shouldn't sue a brother in Christ. And we really struggled because it was hard to come up with the money. In fact, I think I got to the end of the semester and I didn't have enough even to make my own rent payment, let alone his. Partly because I was paying his rent too. And so we really struggled with that and we, we did some things where we sort of talked to them, is this what we have to do? Do we have to take you to small claims? Thinking that maybe he would start thinking, I don't want that to happen either. But we didn't. We finally, in the end, Steve and I prayed. We sat down together. We said, you know what? just is what it is. Maybe he'll get it someday. Maybe he'll reimburse us. Maybe not. And so we ate his rent ourselves. And I don't say that to say, look at us, as much as it was a real struggle for us. We, we did struggle with, should we take him to court? Should we not? And we, what we ultimately decided was, Paul says to the Corinthians, Shouldn't do that. Isn't it better sometimes to be wronged? So that was a hard pill for us to swallow. A really hard pill for us to swallow. Some of the Lord's rewards may be here and now. Sometimes the Lord will reward us for those things here and now. But oftentimes, we just have to wait. Because it's an eternal thing. And so I look at Abraham and Lot, and I think... They have this conflict. Somebody had to step up to resolve it. That was Abram. When he did, it was something that required that he step out on faith. It was something that he step out and think of Lot's needs above his own. Possibly wondering, but this was supposed to be mine and now I got the worst part of the land and he got the best part. How does that work into God's plan? One of the principles we see in this was that he had to put Lot's needs above his own and he had to do it through sacrifice, doing good, through benevolence, but ultimately simply through trusting the Lord and his promise. And that's what it boils down to. The Lord had promised him, I'm going to bless you. And it might not have looked like that right now as he's looking at this and Lot basically took the blessing in some respects. So I don't know exactly what was going through Abraham's head or his thinking but it's pretty clear that he wanted to resolve the conflict and knew that it was up to him to do so. And he was willing to make the sacrifice. It's amazing how much that looks like Christ. Is it not? We get all worked up sometimes about the conflict. And I tell you, Dustin, I, and Matt, we, we talk about this a lot in our text messages about the frustration we face. Our jobs would be a lot easier if it didn't involve people. Preach. Amen, brother, right? Preach it. It would be a lot better if we didn't have to deal with people. But you know what? We're called to be peacemakers as much as it depends on us. We're called on to be the bigger man, or for some of you, the bigger woman. And sometimes that means that we have to sacrifice like Abram did. And that's going to require that we simply trust the Lord and his promises to us. Because as we've already read here, the Lord promises us that he's not unjust. He doesn't forget those things. And that our ultimate rewards for what we do here today come in the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. may not happen here and now, but it will happen. Now, on a much more right here and right now um, basis, I think if we were all to honestly think about this and think about our own lives where maybe we've done that, would you be willing to admit that oftentimes it does help lessen the conflict. Is anybody willing to agree with me on that? It might not always, but I will admit that my behavior in dealing with this manager does help. Sometimes it's like heaping coals. 
hot coals on somebody's head. But sometimes it just helps me deal with it. Maybe the circumstance or situation doesn't change. In the case of Abraham and, or Abram, Abram and Lot, didn't change. Lot still got the best of the land. But I'd be willing to bet that Abram was able to sleep at night, knowing that he wasn't in conflict with his family. Sometimes we do get the resolution we hope for, even if the other person takes the best of land. Amen?